Hi friends, I'm Jennifer Thomas. And I'm Andrea Bear. We're so glad you're back with us for season two on the Morning Glory podcast as we dive deeper into the concepts of not only grief and loss, but also how our Catholic faith brings us closer to God. We hope you will join us on this journey to morning glory. Walking through suffering can be hard, especially when we hit bumps in the road. Yet, what do we do when those bumps feel like mountains? For many people, coping with one loss can be hard enough, but what about two losses or three? And then it brings up the question, God, where are you in all of this? Don't you care about me as I go through all this pain and agony? Today's episode, we talk about reoccurring loss, especially in the loss of miscarriage. Welcome back, friends, to the Morning Glory podcast, where we share in that very experience of loss, faith, and hope. I'm Andrea Bear, and with me is Jen Thomas. How are you, Jen? I'm doing good, thanks, Andrea. A little bit under the weather, just getting over a cold or something, but otherwise I'm doing well. How about you? I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. I think, you know, this winter season is, uh, you know, we get all those those cold and those flu-like symptoms. So I'm I'm kind of in the same boat with you. So and in Georgia, we have the the confusing seasons where, you know, the flowers never know when it's actually spring. And so they start <laughs> popping up at random times throughout the year just because they get confused by this Georgia weather. So um, but you know, it's all good like bipolar allergies, right? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, you know, I think today's topic, um, I, am I know that you've spoke about infertility. Um, and I said that probably does kind of speak to your heart a little bit. Yeah. Um, for my husband and I, it took us almost five years to get pregnant with our oldest and going through that whole process was just so many ups and downs and, questioning like what was wrong with my body? Was it something wrong with my husband's body? Was there something that, you know, I did? Was I being punished in some way for maybe some mistakes I'd made in the past? Or, um, you know, your mind just goes down so many different rabbit holes whenever you have this one thing that you're, you're trying for so wholeheartedly. And I know that there were multiple times that I questioned like, God, why am I not getting pregnant? And um, while I was going through all of that, we actually had some friends who suffered, um, you know, what they thought was infertility at first. And then they actually suffered a couple of miscarriages. And I know that that was devastating for them. So um, it's just it's one of those crosses that nobody wants to bear and Uh it's very uncomfortable for people to talk about it, but kind of like what we do here on the podcast where we're trying to help people feel more comfortable with talking about those types of loss, because you never know who else out there might need to hear your story or someone else's story just to know like, Hey, I'm not the only one who's been through this. Sure. And I think like, and I'll say from my perspective, because I mean, I could get pregnant by passing my husband in the hallway. You know, I mean, it was just very quick and simple, but I know I've had friends who have struggled with that and and people in that I'm very close to. And so I think for, for people who are listening that maybe are like me, this, 
I think this episode is going to help people have some more empathy and more patience and, and a little bit of, you know, uh, understanding of what people are going through. So, well, I think this is a perfect segue to introduce our guest today. Do you want to go ahead and do the honors, Jen? Yeah. So our guest today is Maria Riley, who experienced the loss of miscarriage, not once, not twice, but actually four times while also dealing with the loss of her father. Um, you know, if hope or faith seemed gone, Maria had many reasons to feel despair, but she had a steadfast faith that has been able to help her get through these difficult moments. And we're going to chat with her about how this walk with Christ has brought her farther than she ever could have imagined. She's a Catholic author of the popular children's chapter book series, Adventures with the Saints, and earned a bachelor's in English communication arts from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. And you can find out more from her at her website, mariarileyauthor.com or on her social media. So welcome, Maria. We are so blessed to have you here with us today. Thank you, Jen. Thanks, Andrea. It's so great to be here. And I just love because um, for those that don't know, we've we've known, we met Maria through our Writers Guild, the same the same conference that Jen and I first met was also the same conference where we met Maria and we got to learn a little bit about her story and her journey in writing, which is such a unique and, and different experience because you write children's books. I write fictional and Jen writes, you know, more letters, anthologies and journals. So I just love, you know, seeing that we have such different, the same talent, but used in such different modalities. Absolutely. It, it makes me think about, um, you know, when St. Paul talks about how we're all members of the same body and have different functions. So one of us is a hand, one of us is an elbow, one of us is a shoulder. And we all have, you know, our, our different roles and can bring something, you know, different to, to different people. And, and Christ use us, uses us in these unique ways uh, that are all similar. And then he's brought us together to be able to support each other in our endeavors, which is such a gift. I feel really blessed to know both of you and everyone from the Catholic Writers Guild. Yeah. What a, what a great analogy. I really, I like that. And I've, I've heard that passage before how, but I never thought about it in terms of actually the same thing. I always thought about it, like somebody's a carpenter, somebody's, you know, different jobs, but not the same field, but even that there's mm -hmm. variation. So well, I think this is a great opportunity for you to share with us a little bit about your story because you have definitely walked a um, a pretty pretty eventful and emotional experience. And as we are um, going into the season of Lent, and we talk about you know suffering, and we talk about redemption, you know, I think your story. Is, is very similar parallels in terms of walking with the cross. Maybe you could start with, you know, where did this begin? Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's my own personal way of the cross. And um, I think all of our listeners, your listeners will be able to really relate to the fact that um, as we go through life, each of us, you know, we have, we have times in the resurrection, we have those joyful celebrations, but we also all, um, have our own way of the cross. And so for me, my, um, my way really started, um, shortly after I got married to a wonderful man named Whitney. Um, he and I had a, a pretty quick, about a year and a half whirlwind, um, 
courtship and engagement. And we got pregnant with our first daughter a month after we got married, which we were thrilled about and were, were hoping for. Um, and so nine months after that, my oldest daughter was born um, healthy, full term. We didn't have um, any problems or complications with her. I had preeclampsia. And so I was induced at 38 weeks. But um, like I said, she had absolutely no problems and I my body didn't have any problems. Um, and then when she was about six months old, we found out that we were pregnant again, which we were um, very thrilled about. Again, we wanted a large family and I wanted my kids close together. That was um, always a dream that I had. Um, and um, so shortly after my oldest was born, my father was diagnosed with leukemia. And so he started his his battle with leukemia. Um, and so while he was still with us, but battling um, is when I had my first loss, which was um, a very, very traumatic. So I was 15 weeks pregnant. Um, so well into my second trimester and everybody knew. Um, and I delivered my son at home in my bathroom um, and had to bring him with me to the hospital. And so I had a lot of trauma associated with that, um, of course. Um, and then I was also, you know, dealing with my dad, who's um, his bone marrow transplant had failed. We had started to realize that um, that was kind of his only hope for treatment and for cure. And um, he had gotten a donor and it, it didn't take. And so we were basically told he had a few months left to live. Um, and so, uh, you know, you do a little bit of um, anticipatory grieving then when you know that that's happening. And then I had lost my son. Um, so then fast forward a few months, um, I had a lot of tests done on me with the doctors to try to figure out like what happened, why um, I spontaneously went into labor so early. Uh, they couldn't find anything wrong, told me to wait, you know, three or four months and then try again. And so we did. Uh, and I conceived again. Um, and I was I was pregnant and was able to share that good news with my dad before he passed. But then um, about a month after he passed, I went in to my 14 week appointment and found out that my uh, my baby had had passed at about 12 weeks. I want to go back a little bit because, I mean, I know that your story is a lot longer than this. And already I'm just like wow, <laughs> I, I need to digest a little bit more of this. So you, you delivered a home birth. Um, your child was 15 weeks old and your father is dying from leukemia. I mean, let's, let's kind of break that down a little bit. I mean, the amount of emotions that you're going through, I can, I can't even fathom what, what is going on in your world. Um, a lot of numbness. Um, I, so, so right. <laughs> the, the month after I lost my son, my, my father's mother. So my grandmother also died suddenly from a stroke. So she was, uh, we were not anticipating her death at all. Um, and I had, I had delivered my son at a Catholic hospital in Colorado Springs and every, every year they do an annual service for all of the children who have passed. And, um, that weekend fell the same weekend as my grandmother's funeral in New Jersey. And so I had the option of attending my baby's service or my grandmother's service. And I had to choose to miss one. Um, and, um, I, I don't like people, I kind of would ask me how I was doing and, and what was going on. And honestly, even now, like when I look back and think about it, so it's been, it's been over 10 years. So I, 
I could not talk about this. Like I did not talk about this. Um, I survived, you know, people talk about one day at a time for me, a lot of it was just like one minute at a time. Um, I had to be reminded to eat, you know, like real, real basic stuff. It's kind of one of those things where you are living moment to moment because that's the only way you can live. I mean, it's just, it's funny because just in listening to your story, I hear so many parallels of yours with mine, but mine is a little bit backwards, um, in, in a few different ways, but, um, you know, how, how did you even begin to, to find healing from like, I mean, your grandmother's death, which was sudden and going, you know, having to choose between going to that or your own, a service that's held for your own child. Do you think you were even able to go through the process of deciding which one to go through? Or did you kind of look at it more from a very logical standpoint because you couldn't go there emotionally? Um, so I, I, I cried. I was very, very mad at God for the timing of all of that. Um, but I definitely made that decision based on logic, which was all of my family was going to be in New Jersey and I needed as much love and support as I could get. Um, and, um, and then also with my dad being sick and, and knowing that, you know, his last days were with us, it was really important for me to spend as much time with him as possible. Cause like I said, so I was living in Colorado at the time and my parents, um, live in Texas and my grandmother was in New Jersey. And so, um, so that was an opportunity for me to spend time with my dad. Um, and so it, it wasn't really a choice for me. Like I knew I had to go to my grandmother's funeral because of the other people who were there at the funeral. But then I just was so hurt and angry that I was not given the space to grieve my own baby. Um, and then I was there crying and mourning over my grandmother, but then also just so devastated about um, what I had gone through. And one of the things that was so, so challenging, um, with especially my first loss, which, um, which is that I, I delivered a fully intact baby. Like I delivered a son. We didn't know that he was a boy until, um, I had him in my hands. Like he was smaller than one palm. Um, but he had, you know, 10 fingers and 10 toes and, you know, he was, he was fully formed. His skin was a little bit translucent, but, um, but it was, it was a, it was a baby. And, some my my last miscarriage, my fourth miscarriage was more of of what I always thought miscarriages were, which is, you know, you're pregnant for a couple of weeks and then you just have a little bit of an extra heavy period, and you know you don't really experience any sort of um, like physical body of your child, um, and so a lot of people were reaching out to me um, and even people in my own family who were, who were the most well intending, you know, putting their arms around me saying, Oh yeah, I had a miscarriage once, you know, I knew I was pregnant. And even my own mother, she had a very early miscarriage where she knew she had had was late for her period. And then, you know, started, started late and never had to experience what I had gone through. Did you find it comforting when people would say things like that? Or was it more of a, Hey, I, I kind of need you to just 
let me be the person having this moment? So for me in those moments, um, so I didn't realize it at the time. I did eventually see a counselor because I was, I was very traumatized. I had PTSD from that experience at home. Um, but I didn't notice, I didn't realize that it was PTSD. I was unable to sleep. And like I said, I was unable to, to form, to like, even remember to eat. It was like really, really simple things. Like I was not really functioning. Um, and so I was eventually able to find an amazing therapist there in Colorado who um, specialized in um, miscarriage and early childhood loss. Um, but it it hurt me so much when other people would say, oh, I know what you're going through. Or, oh, I had a miscarriage um, because they hadn't had the same level of trauma that I had had. So there were, and that's what my counselor helped me really understand is that there were two things going on. I lost a child, which I share with every other woman who's ever had a miscarriage or or lost a young child or an older child, right? Like a child is a child. And when you love that child, it doesn't matter how old they are. um, You hurt as a mother, like so, so deeply. But then I had also experienced trauma around it. um, And, and the, the experience that I had of, you know, being home and like, I, I was the one who had to, to detach him from the, the, you know, detach the umbilical cord. And like, I delivered my placenta separately. Um, like I walked into the emergency room and could feel the placenta coming out and was just like in, in an emergency room and just like was, ble- I mean, there was blood everywhere all over my bathroom. Like it was, it was very traumatic and it was a trauma. And at the time, when people tried to say, oh, it's okay. Oh, you, you know, you're going to have a rainbow baby. Oh, you know, you're, you're going to heal. You'll get through this. I had a miscarriage and then I went on to have my baby. And now I'm like, oh, what a blessing. I wouldn't have had this child if my other baby had lived. And, and I would, that was not my experience. Oh, and I think you're, you're talking about the realness of this. And I think, you know, for someone who's maybe not gone through it, um, or, or just anyone in general, we tend to gloss over the hard. So, you know, calling a rainbow baby or, you know, we have babies in heaven. It's, it's part of our way of saying, okay, not that we're trying to dismiss it, but that's hard. That's hard. What do you do when you're in that hardness and, and someone is going through those, you know, you're, you're walking into the hospital and you're like, your insides are coming out and you're, you're struggling and, there's no magical word that could even probably comfort you, even if somebody's gone through that, because it's it's such personal and it's such situational. I think part of why sometimes people seemingly gloss over it is because they don't know what to say in the moment. And yeah, it, it's it's so difficult because you know that they have good intentions when they're saying these things to you. But in that moment, I imagine you're just like, be quiet. Don't talk to me right now. Like, (laughs) you know, because that's what you're feeling in that moment. It's um, we had another guest on uh, who lost his daughter to cancer. And he said, you know, there's no amount of platitudes. There's nothing that anyone can literally say. And sometimes it's best to just be quiet. And just silence yourself as much as you want to say something like, hey, I understand what you went through. I've been there before. And it's because the person saying it is uncomfortable and it's hard for them to know how to respond. But that's just that that's part of our human nature. And 
I mean, the fact that you're here now and you're you're talking about this, I I truly cannot imagine like the amount of courage that you have right now to be able to talk about it openly like this. Thank you. Like I said, it has taken me years and years and years and and counseling and prayer and surrender. And I mean, this is not the sort of thing that you get over overnight. Um, and I, I even just last night, you know, wasn't sleeping well. And I woke up thinking, why, why didn't I sleep so well? And, and I recognized that it's because I knew I was talking about my babies today and I miss them and I'm sad. And, um, you know, you mentioned like having our children in heaven is, is such a gift and is such a consolation, but not in this life, like in this life, the reality is that I miss my children. I love the children that I have because, you know, fast forward, um, we adopted three other children. And so I have, I have four amazing daughters. Um, and I never did carry another pregnancy to term after my first one. Um, and, and I wouldn't have those children if my other children had lived, I might have adopted other children, but you know, God, God had special children picked out for me, which is such a gift and such a consolation. Um, but I still miss my babies so much. I think that is so beautiful. I think as I listen and I hear what you're saying is, you know, I, so often we talk about in this podcast about grief and love and, and more often than not, it's about someone who's been in our lives and the, the bonds and the memories and, and here you miss your children. And while they never said even a word, there's that bond that has already been established. And, um, it just, it just kind of, brings everything together about the the depths of love and that we are we are able to to be able to be a part of you know how how beautiful what a gift to hear all of that and you know like I said I I have not experienced that and yet at the same time listening to this I I can I can imagine I can only imagine that there is that that need, that desire, that want to hold your child and to to comfort them and to be a mother. And it makes me think of of our blessed mother. It makes me think of the relationship with Mary and with Jesus and that unique bond that only you, a mother and a child, can have together. It's it's funny you mention our blessed mother. For a very long time, I was angry with her um, because. Um, her child didn't die in the womb. She never suffered a miscarriage. Um, and it was, it was years later that my heart was finally softened enough. I mean, of course, with all of this loss that was happening, um, I, my heart was, was really, really hardened. There were, um, there were probably, it was probably about an 18 month period that I could not step into a church. Um, if I stepped in like the thresholds, I would step into the the little Northix, the opening of the front door of the church, and my I could not stop sobbing, like like unconsolable and um, just really intense. And so I would try every you know two or three months. I would say I'm feeling better. I think I'm healing. I think I'm okay. And then I would try to go to church. Um, and 
And it was too much for me. And I was just so, so angry. I wonder if every time you stepped into the church and started crying, if that was, if that was God being with you and like another little baby step, you know, this is a baby step. Okay. You made it here and you were able to get all of those emotions out and you were like, I'm, I'm not ready yet. It's not time, but you kept going back. And even though every time you went back, you, you cried, you know, it, it just, I, I get this image of like, a you know, of God or even Mary of a parent holding a child as they're crying and the child just needs to cry a little more. And the parent saying, it's okay, you can cry, you know, just that tenderness. And I just, I can't help but wonder if that's part of what was happening to you in those moments. No, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, and I, I felt like, so what would happen for me is I would, I would start moving towards being ready to, to trust and to let God hold me again. And then, and I was praying, oh, I was praying. Um, and then I would get pregnant again. And then I would pray every day for the life of my child. And I believe that there is no more pure prayer on earth than that, that a mother prays for her child. Um, and, and so those months when I was pregnant, I was, I was going to mass and I was doing every offering and doing everything right. And I was taking all my prenatal pills and exercising just the right amounts. And I didn't eat lunch meat and like, you know, all of the things I did, I did everything right. I did everything in my power and then I would lose more children. So I, so I lost my son at 15 weeks. My daughter was 12 weeks. Um, and then it took me about a year to be ready to try again. And then I conceived twins. My first twin was lost very early, about six weeks. Um, my second twin was lost at um, 10 and a half weeks. Again, after a heartbeat, like healthy baby growing, the doctors had no idea what was going on. Um, and then I finally went under the care of a reproductive endocrinologist. And those doctors don't really know what's going on either. They're good at getting people pregnant. They're not, no one's any good at keeping people pregnant. Um, and then I, I lost my last one at a, about six weeks and each, each time. So each, each loss was, was earlier on. So it was a little bit softer. Um, but every time I would lose another child and lose another pregnancy, I relived all of the grief and all of the pain of the other children that I had lost. So my last loss, which was only a six week old baby. And I had not had a lot of time to be particularly attached to him. And I had not seen a heartbeat and, and all of those other things. Um, that was no question my hardest because when I lost him, I lost all of my other children all over again. And that's one of the things that happens when you have multiple grieving situations in, in consecutive order. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, listening to this and I'm listening to the, just the repetitive loss. And, you know, Jen and I've talked about compound grief that, you know, when a person dies and here you're trying to have another child and then to hear, even in your twins, you anticipate, you know, multiple babies and you lose one and then you're able to carry another one. And 
you have this other loss. I, it just brings to mind when I, when I, even when I first heard your story, like I think of the stations of the cross and how Jesus didn't just fall once. Like I used to get annoyed actually when I, you know, I was in Catholic school and I had to go through all 14 stations and, you know, why do I have to sit through each piece of this agony? And I'm, as I'm listening to you right now, I'm feeling like this is probably why, you know, it's that Jesus didn't just experience the the crucifixion. He experienced the fall. He experienced the fall again. He experienced, you know, the, the crowning of the thorns. He experienced this agony in a process. And for us to walk through that, I mean, it, I hear this story of your, your miscarriage and the multiple losses, you know, if, if anything, there's that, that connection of that God also went through multiple losses. He went through multiple aspects of suffering and that really shows the human side that he's there with us on this walk, even though it can be so dark. I, I completely agree. Um, the, the prayer that I kept in my heart and just said over and over and over again was, as Jesus prays from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and I felt so forsaken. Um, it was it was too much. And I I didn't have a chance to fully grieve. I was 27 when my my father died of leukemia. He had just met his first grandchild. None of my so my other three kids never met my father. Um, and all they have are, are stories and pictures. Um, and I was not even able to fully process that grief because, you know, a month later I was losing another child. Um, and it, and it was just like how how much can can one person take but then when i when i meditate and pray the stations of the cross uh i wonder that about jesus too like even just the fact that he he was scourged before he had to carry his cross so it wasn't just a a man who had been you know tortured all night but he was he, like physically he was he was cut open all over his back. And then the heavy weight of the cross was laid on him, which only intensified that weight and pain. And, and like you said, the fact that he fell three times and that that is the the significant part of the tradition, he might have fallen more than three times and that might only be what was passed down to us. Um, but it was, it was, it was nonstop and it was it was pain on top of pain. And then it was more pain on top of pain. And then he finally gets to the place of his crucifixion and they are driving nails through his body um, after everything else that he's, he's endured. And then he's left to just hang there in pain, just waiting for the moment of his relief, waiting for his, his inevitable passing. Um, and I have, I have been there. I have, I have walked that way of the cross with Jesus and I have, called out to him in pain, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think also as, as I hear this story, you know, and, and we kind of connect it to like the stations of the cross. Were there any times though, in that walk while you're, you're carrying your cross and you're falling and just like Jesus, you're going, you're, you're taking that path. Was there any time where you had a moment of reprieve? Were there any moments where you felt that even though you might have been forsaken or believed that you were forsaken, did you ever feel 
that you knew that God was still with you through all of that hard time? So there were moments, there were, there were glimmers. I think um, part of it was the, the hope every time I saw a new positive pregnancy test that, um, that this was, this was going, and then, and then the devastation afterwards. Um, but another really significant part of our story um, is that, so after my father died and then I had my second loss, um, I, I could not handle any more, but I knew that I have always had this deep, deep desire for a large family. Um, and I knew that one, one child was not going to cut it for me. That was, I was so grateful. I loved my daughter and she was wonderful. Um, but I knew that, that my house and my heart, like I, I wanted more children. And so we decided to become foster parents. And so, um, I, so actually first we thought we would just go straight to adoption and we went to, um, two different adoption places and did the whole like orientation and information then got the the price tag that is associated with a infant adoption. And we were like, oh, we could buy a car for the price of a baby. And I'm a stay-at-home mom. We could not afford that. Uh, they were telling us to like do fundraising and, you know, ask our friends and family for money. And I mean, I'm just like, I'm not doing a bake sale for a baby, you know, like, especially because um, I had carried a full baby to term, like a healthy full-term baby who was alive and in our home. And so I knew that my body could, um, like, I know Jen, like what you were sharing with your infertility is like the not knowing like what's going on. Um, and I think that's a lot more typical with infertility is you never get pregnant or you can never carry a, a pregnancy to full term. But a lot of the, the typical things that they test for, I was ruled out of simply because I had had a full-term baby. I, I had done it. Like my body had had a full pregnancy. Um, and, and so like I was, I mean, I was baffled myself, but a lot of the doctors were baffled too, as we're, we're going through this whole journey. Um, so after we realized that we could not afford, you know, to do an adoption and we weren't going to take out, you know, a second house loan just to, to adopt a baby, we said, I said, well, let's, let's be foster parents. And then this is what's going to happen. We're going to have our house full of foster babies and we're going to be so busy fostering that when it's the worst possible time, that's when my pregnancy will last and when I'll get to have a baby. And then my house is going to be so full and I'm going to have so many kids. I'm not going to know what to do with myself. Um, so we naively thought you just like sign up to be foster parents and start fostering. So it's like a solid year process um, between, you know, classes and all sorts of paperwork and background checks. And, you know, the fire department has to come and check your house and becoming foster parents is not for the, the faint of heart. Um, no, it's not. Oh my gosh. I, we have um, some close people. I'm not going to say who, but have gone through that process. And, you know, it's like, it's like an FBI search and you're just thinking, you know, people who can just naturally have children don't have to go through this. Why? You know, I understand the reason, but it is that in itself is a penance to go through that process. So, yeah. So Sorry, we, go ahead and continue. That's OK. So um, so we, we had taken a pause from trying to conceive and started the foster care process. And when we were we we're close to finalizing um, was when we found out that we were pregnant again. And that was the one with the twins. Um, and then about a month after I lost my second twin, 
was when we got our phone call. We were officially approved. Um, we got our first phone call and it was twins who were coming to us, which of course, um, <gasps> we could see God's oh hands in that. Um, and so we went from one sweet, well-behaved, never screaming, like perfect, easy little 18-month-old to literally in the span of two hours had one to three. And the, the twins were already 10 months old. So we didn't have the like tiny infants who sleep all day and don't go anywhere and don't do anything. So oh my goodness. Um, it was nuts to say the least. Um, but but that was when I really saw God's hand in, in my life that um, we we had so many blessings with them and we thought we weren't even going to keep them for the first week. And then they wound up staying with us and um, they had a, a litany of health issues and, you know, they have kind of their own story, which I'll share. I'll not share and let them, you know, they get to decide if they want to down the road. Um, they know that they're adopted and they know their own birth story, um, but that's their story to share. But they they were um, not healthy, typical 10 month olds. And I mean, in the first like two months, the miracles we saw of how quickly they turned around and issues that, you know, doctors were saying they were going to require surgery for or would need like lifelong interventions for were just, you know, with with healthy um, you know, regular nut- nutrition and, you know, good love and like a consistent family, like those, those children turned around and those were like the little miracles and those were the, the rays of, of hope. Um, but so we had them for about five months and, um, and then I reached the the apex of my own way of the cross, my moment on the crucifixion, which was um, in November so we had started with the reproductive endocrinologist. I found out that we were pregnant and we're doing all of the regular like blood checks and making sure that everything was healthy. Um, and we got the phone call from the RE that the pregnancy um, was not taking and that that baby that we don't know, but I call him a boy that my son was um, going to die and I had to let him pass. And then the same day I got a phone call from the social worker that the twins' biological aunt had been approved to get custody of them and they were coming to take the twins. Oh my goodness. What a blow. So um, this is, this is the worst day of my life. Um, The, the emptiness, I, I, I couldn't even think about God or think about talking to God because the, the hurt and the anger was beyond my capacity to feel. Um, I I broke. I broke in a way that um, I have not before. And um, so they came and they they took the the twins away. And then I I stopped my progesterone. And so um, my period started then. And I was starting to miscarry my last baby. Um, and I don't think that I got out of pajamas or like did anything or functioned for days. Um, just, just a complete brokenness. I think one of the things that is missed with, um, with a lot of women who I've spoken with who have gone through miscarriages, um, is the fact that there's the, the mental aspect you know, of processing everything that you've been through. But then there's also the physical aspect of your hormones that 
your body, you know, was pregnant and now all of a sudden it's not. And so if you've been fortunate enough to have given birth to a child, you know, you have the, um, the period where, you know, you're lactating and then you're breastfeeding. And then when you stop breastfeeding, all of those hormones come out of your body. And just thinking about the fact that your body physically went through literally so much in that time span four times, that's, that's a lot for a body to go through. And that's just the physical aspect of it. And so thinking back to what you were saying about, you know, your cross and how the stations at the cross and Jesus falling three times and, um, you know, he kept getting up every time you said yes to life in some form or fashion, you know, you were getting back up and I, I just applaud you for, for doing that, for still saying yes to God through your actions, because you very easily could have said, nope, not trying this anymore. You know, even with the fostering the kids, um, you know, that's, that is rough. I do know quite a few people who have, who are in that, that same boat who've done that. And it isn't for the faint of heart. It's difficult because you open your heart to love a child. And then that child is, is taken from you and it's, it's different. And I'm, I'm just, I'm in awe, like listening to you because I wonder how many other women have similar stories as you and just just need to share. There was a, I, I want to add that I had a friend and I won't say their, their name because I don't think it's my place to share, but um, they had had a similar experience where they were, they were going through this process of fostering with the intent to adopt. And then um, the child was taken away from them and they had also experienced loss of a parent. And they said that the loss of a parent versus the loss of a child is such a different experience. And, um, they said that this was harder for them than if they, than even the loss of their parent, which was incredibly hard. And, and I would imagine it's almost even harder because unlike the loss of death, you know, they're out there you know that they're still, they're with someone and there's that grief in itself that is a completely different type of grief because um, they're not with you, they're with someone else. And, and we know like in the foster system, the goal is to, to return children to their, to their parents or to their, to their family, but that doesn't make it easy on the, on the person that is, loves them just as much, if not, you know, in the same capacity of wanting to be their parent. I'm, I'm curious, what kind of time span did all of this happen? So from, you know, your, you had your first baby and then your dad being sick, like what was the time span throughout all of this? So it was over the course of about two and a half years wow. from, from my first loss to my, my fourth, fourth miscarriage. Um, and so, so for me, so first to what Andrea was saying about the foster care and, and having children removed from you that are not, it's very different than when someone, someone dies and they can never go back. 
um, my heart was so heavy, but there is, um, there is a different kind of grief when, so we as foster parents get a little glimpse into the lives of the bio families. And um, I believe that when possible, children belong with their biological families as much as possible. That is, that is where like we all have this deep desire to be loved and accepted by our own families. Um, but some of these bio parents especially are, are very, very dysfunctional and have like just a long history and a long pattern of, of real struggles. And so I do feel blessed that in our case, my children were going to uh, an aunt and not back to their the home where they had suffered the issues that they had. And so this aunt had never had, she had children of her own and had never lost custody of them. And so she was a much more stable place. And so that was a little bit more comforting. Um, but I remember like I wrote this, I think it was like a three page handwritten note about each of the girls. And it was like, okay, this one, this is her lovey. This is the color we dress her in. Like this is her sleep schedule. This is how we comfort her. This is what she needs. This is her favorite food. And then her twin sister is not the same person because she's got her own personality and she needs this. And, and this is her lovey. And because I, I didn't even get to meet the aunts, like the social worker came and picked up the girls. And so I just like sent them with all of their clothes and bags. And I was like, please give her this letter. Like she needs to know how to comfort them. Like they need different things. Like, you know, in, in five months, like I had fallen in love with these little girls and they were calling me mama. I was the only mom that they knew. Um, but so then the, the beautiful, you know, end of the story is so, so that was, that was my, my crucifixion. That was, that was the worst day of my life. And in my brokenness, I turned to God and I said, I can't, do this anymore, Lord, if something is wrong with me, which I still believe to this day that I have something that's medical science has not caught up with yet. Um, because there's no reason. Um, and the, the odds of having three consecutive miscarriages after having a heartbeat, um, is very, very low. So my last pregnancy, I, I never saw a heartbeat. Um, but my first three that I had all had heartbeats and, um, the chance of that happening consecutively is, is like less than 0.01%. Um, it's, it's very uncommon. And so what I told God was, if something is wrong with me and I cannot carry another baby to term, you have to stop sending me souls. Like I cannot have any more death, death inside my womb. Like I, I couldn't, and I knew that I couldn't. Um, and, and that was, the prayer that God finally heard and finally answered because then after that day, uh, I was never pregnant again. And my husband and I tried. Um, so then fast forward a, a year after that. So we, oh, well, so first two weeks after the twins left, we got a phone call from the foster agency that the aunt was um, super overwhelmed with the twins and she had, she had an older daughter and then so the twins were about 18 months old. And then I think she had like a 20 month old. So she essentially had like triplet 18 months olds. And if you've had toddlers in your house, you know, one is a handful, two is insane. I would not survive three. Wow. Um, <laughs> and so she had to let the girls go back into foster care and she loved them and she wanted to take care of them, but she recognized that she was not able to give them the home that they needed. And so they called us and said, we had told our foster agency, like, we're not doing any placements, don't call us. And so the phone rang and it was the foster agency. And I thought, 
I like, I don't think my heart is ready for another child. Like, I don't think I can take another placement, but I know like these kids need homes. And so I'm like, I'll just, I'll get the information and I'll talk to Whitney about it. We'll pray about it. But I just answered the phone thinking I'm not ready for another placement. And they said, hi, Maria. So the twins are back in foster care and they're they're coming back tomorrow. You know, their aunt can't handle it. And so we wanted to call you first. And is there any way, you know, you'd be willing to take them back? And it was like, I didn't even have to call Whitney and ask. I was like, yes, yes, hundred percent. Like, can they come today? Like, we're so ready. She's like, okay, okay. All right. Awesome. So, um, so the twins came back, which was amazing. Um, and then, and then we sort of had a relatively peaceful year. And I say relatively because I still had three kids under three. So <laughs> um, it was it was nuts. And then that following Christmas, um, I, I started having the, the pull on my heart. I still wanted a baby. So again, the twins came to us at almost a year old. And I love itty bitty babies. Like I just, I love little tiny, little, tiny snuggling, just fall asleep on you the way they smell and Oh my so God. cozy. Yes. Yeah. When my when my, when I'm an empty nester, I'm going to be one of those women who goes to the hospital just to hold babies. Like I just. Love <laughs> so I really I really had this deep desire for an infant. Like I I wanted a baby, and the twins's um, biological father was really getting his act together. He had um, completed all of the classes that he needed to do. He was going to his counseling session every week. Uh, he was, you know, testing clean every week. Like he showed up to all their visits. Um, and so the um, social worker had told us that it was looking like the twins were probably going to reunify with their dad, which I was very happy about because I was really rooting for him. Like he's a good man who worked really hard and, um, you know, followed all the instructions and was trying to better his life so that he could take care of his kids. Um, and so I started to think, oh my gosh, I can't go back to having an only child. Like I will go crazy if this house is empty. And so, um, Whitney and I prayed about it. And so we decided to simultaneously start trying for a baby to conceive and, um, and to open our home up for another foster child. And we said only zero to six months and no major health concerns because we already had the three kids. Um, which children like that are not very common in foster care. A lot of times infants have older siblings that they need to be paired with, or they have suffered a lot during pregnancy and they have um, some very severe health concerns. And so, so I was putting it in God's hands. And three weeks later, we got a call about my youngest daughter, Charlotte, who, um, she was the fourth child of this mom. All three of her older siblings had already been um, adopted. Mom had never shown up or participated at all. They had no information on dad. And she was going to be a, they said, there's, there's no guarantees in foster care, but they said she will need a foster to adopt family. And we're looking for a family that wants to adopt. And she was born premature she came to us when she was not quite eight weeks old and she was just under eight pounds. So newborn size. Um, and so God gave me my little infants and she was still in little preemie clothes and just tiny and just so sweet. Oh my gosh. Um, and, but then it was sooner than we thought, cause we thought it would take a while to either, you know, conceive or get this foster baby. Um, and God had other plans for us. And I'm like, okay, well, so the twins are supposed to reunify in March. So that's three months. Anyone can do anything for three months, right? 
So for three months, I had my four-year-old daughter, my two-and-a-half-year-old twins, and my newborn. And I'm like, I'm okay. I can do this. Four kids, four and under, right? Three months. Anyone can, anyone can do this. And then we come to the court date in March, and um, we sit down with the twins' biological dad. Like I said, we had developed a really positive relationship with us. And he looked at me and started crying. And he said, we just found out that his new girlfriend is pregnant. And he said, I can't take care of the twins and my new baby. And if I sign over their rights, will you adopt them? And will you let me be in their life? And I said, Uh. yes, like, yes, of course. Um, And so we went into that court date anticipating that we were going to be told the date for the girls to be reunifying and that we would be losing the twins. And instead we came out of it knowing that we were going to adopt them. Of course, because it was foster care, it still took us another nine months to adopt them. <laughs> so he he signed over rights, but then they still had to go through the legal termination process for mom's rights. And there's just like, oh my gosh, so much paperwork and so many hoops to jump through. It was nuts. Um, and so then all of a sudden, my three months of craziness became my life. And then we we had the four girls. And so that's that's how I have four girls who are less than four years apart. So when, when Charlie was born, my oldest was not four yet. So, you know, um, oh, wow. I'm just, I don't even know how to put this into words, but I'm just, I'm, I'm hearing all of this and I'm just thinking, you know, all the things that you felt like God was taking from you, he multiplied, you know? And I think that, you know, you had four miscarriages and now you have four children and, you know, every single time you thought that you were abandoned, he, he brought it forth to you. I mean, and, and the, wow, like (laughs) I, I can't even put it into words, like how quickly all of that happened. I mean, if people don't see how God works and the, and the amount of that he really is there with you, but I mean, man, Maria, man. <laughs> I will say, you say quickly. It did not feel quickly living it when sure. every day of two and a half years was sorrow and longing and prayers that I felt like weren't being answered. Um, but it is it is a beautiful thing to be able to get through so much loss and so much trauma um, and to be on the other side of it and to look back and to see God's hand in it but I was not an expert at seeing his hand in it while I was in it. I, I hurt. Um, but one of the things that I really hold on to um, is, is that the suffering is the middle of our story. Um, so, so many people want to know the why and to understand it. And what's, what's the answer um, and I've actually, I've, I've drafted a, a book that I'm like, I'm too scared to put out into the world. And it's, it's called the long answer. And it's basically that. So it's like a teenager who is overwhelmed with and it's a foster child because I have a big heart for foster kids. And it's, it's why, why are all these terrible things happening to me? What is the point of this suffering? If there is a God, if God does exist, why would he let this suffering happen? And so with someone from the church who walks through with her, she helps her understand that like, it's, it's the long answer, right? That 
that God's playing the long game. Like the moment when we're in the middle of the suffering, that's not the end of the story. The crucifixion isn't the end of the story. Like that's the middle of the story. That's the sorrow. That's, that's the low. That's the worst part. That's the, the pain and the awfulness and the emptiness and the feeling abandoned. But then Easter Sunday comes, the resurrection comes, and there is something that will be our redemption at the end of the day. And each of our stories and each of our suffering and each of our own ways of the cross will lead us to, you know, what will be something different. And for me, it was over the span of, you know, two and a half years. For some people, it's over the span of of decades. For some people, it's, you know, just a couple of, of months, or it might be, you know, like we all have our our own different stories, but there is, there is the hope in the resurrection. I love the analogy of the suffering being the middle of the story, because it's like, if, if you know that that's the middle, then there's gotta be something better. You know, there, there's gotta be more, there's gotta be glory on the other side. There's got to be, you know, that ray of hope coming through and, it kind of makes me wonder through my own times of suffering, through whatever I've suffered. And even for our listeners out there, you know, if, if I think about those times of my greatest and deepest suffering, if I'm thinking about that in terms of that's the middle, but it's not the end. And when you're in it, I know that it feels like it's the end. And I think that's probably the hardest part is that when you're in those those really dark moments that it does feel like the end. But now, even as I'm sitting here talking to you, it's like, no, this is, we're on the upswing now. Like it's, it's going to get better. And there might still be some other lows, but maybe that was my middle that I experienced as that lowest low. I I totally agree with you. I think I've, I love what you said, Maria, about, you know, that it is the middle. And I think, you know, this is for anyone, regardless of um, just, you know, loss and miscarriage, any kind of loss that you've experienced, we tend to think of that as the end. You know, we're kind of trained to think of death or any loss as the end of a chapter, but really it can be the beginning of something so much more beautiful, um, a life that we never anticipated and just because it might be the end of one aspect, it really isn't the fullness of the full story. And I think that's what's so beautiful about your story is that is that you see that. And I think with having a faith, we are so blessed because we don't know what the end of the story is yet. We still have that opportunity to find out. And I think that gives us hope. I absolutely, absolutely agree. Um I also wanted to share, um, so there was this, this pivotal moment for me in my grief when, so for so long, I was so sad for my children and I prayed for my children and I don't remember what it was that made me recognize it, but, um, my children don't need my prayers because they are saints in heaven. They have gone to heaven without sitting. They have what we call a baptism of intent. And of course, if they had lived, I would have baptized them. Um, and so all of a sudden I realized, and this was a couple of years after my last loss, that I have five children 
who are saints. Like, okay, first of all, that's amazing, right? But second of all, they are, I, I call them my itty bitty saints and they are in heaven interceding for me and for my family. I remind my sis, my daughters um, that they have siblings who are saints in heaven and that they can pray to their itty bitty saints. And I also remind other women who have lost children that your babies aren't angels. So that's not what happens. Your, your babies at the moment of conception, their soul is complete. And so when they die, they become saints. They go to heaven and they get to live in the glory of God. They are called back home so young and it is so painful for us. But I recognize that there is this whole army of itty bitty saints in heaven. Like think about all of the itty bitty babies who have been called back home to heaven before they even had an opportunity to even like have the slightest little tinge of sin on them, like completely pure. And so um, I pray to our itty bitty saints. And if you are ever um, hurting or suffering or need this army of advocates, you can pray to the itty bitty saints too. I love that. Just And even listening to you. So for our listeners, obviously you can't see Maria's face, but when we record, we do see each other. And Maria, just your face and the smile that was per- like that, that's just exuding and the joy that comes when you talk about these itty bitty saints. You are giving so much hope to so many out there in finding the beauty after that loss, after those crosses, after that suffering, after all of it. You have found the glory in the fact that there are all of these itty bitty saints and. I think of all of the other women out there who have suffered and who are suffering, knowing that there are all of these itty bitty saints out there. Like even just saying the word, I can't help but smile when I say itty bitty saints. So I just, I love the fact that you are giving this hope and this joy to others out there just by sharing your story. And I'm wondering what is, um, you know, what is like a message of hope that you feel like you can give any listeners or anyone out there who's struggling with miscarriage or infertility or even going through the, um, you know, the foster care system and experiencing loss? What, what kind of, what message would you like to tell them to help give them hope? Um, So when I was going through it, I really was mad. One of the things I was mad at God about was that he had given me this deep, deep desire for motherhood and for multiple children. And that my, my heart was not settled with just one kid. And I resented God because I kept trying to have more children and they kept dying. And I was like, Lord, just let me be happy with just my one. Um, But now I can look back and I can recognize that The reason he put that desire so deeply on my heart is because foster care is really, really hard. Twins are very hard. Special needs twins are extremely challenging. And if my heart had been wishy-washy, maybe I want more kids, maybe I don't want more kids, um, I would not have had the strength and the gumption to get through those really, really challenging early years. Um, And so the hope that I would give is remember that God puts these desires on our hearts and he puts them there because he wants to fulfill them. And so it was not the way that I expected. I thought I would give birth 
to a very large family. And instead he has given me these beautiful four daughters whom I love and they fill my heart though. It wasn't what I expected, but he, he gives us those desires. So don't, don't give up and don't stop waiting on God. You know, it's, um, it brings us back to the beginning of the stations and we always forget the first or even in like the rosary, the mystery, the agony in the garden. It's really the training ground. It's the training ground and God is purifying us and he's preparing us. And as we listen to your story today, you know, all of those things happened in preparation so that you could be the mother that you are today. And that's really what God puts us through is that training ground, that preparation so that our hearts are ready to accept him in their fullness. So I, I absolutely love your story. I, and I am so grateful to know you and, and call you a friend and, and to be able to, to be a witness to all of this that you have gone through. And, and I think you're really going to help so many women who've gone through there. And, you know, let's, I also for, wanted to bring up really quickly, um, and I'm sure we could do an entire extra episode on this, but maybe if you could just quickly touch about your husband's experiences process, because we don't want to forget the role that husbands play in this, because I'm sure he went through quite a bit with this as well. You're right that we could do a whole separate episode on, on his, what, what I will say about his suffering was that he felt so much pressure to be my rock. And um, he really had to step up a lot with um, my oldest daughter on the days that I couldn't function and couldn't get out of bed um, as far as, you know, doing the diapers and and doing a lot of the hard work um, that he did not have the same opportunity to grieve as openly. And I think that his grief process took longer um, because he not only lost a child, but he also lost a stable wife, right? Like I, I went into this as like a very happy, generally joyful, like excited to be a stay at home mom, like very loving wife. And very shortly into our marriage, we're talking like less than two years into our marriage, my world completely fell apart. My, my dad passed, my mom, whom I'm super close to, was grieving her partner and best friend. And so she was falling apart and I'm trying to there be there for her. And then I'm, you know, doing all of these doctor's appointments and trying to figure out what's going on. And he is just trying to keep it all together and pretend like everything is okay. Um, what, what really got him through was very recently in the last couple of years, he found a very supportive men's group at our parish. Um, and he became one of the facilitators and leaders um, and finding other faithful Catholic men who had not been through the same experience that he had, but had their own sets of grief, right? Because I'm, we talk about it on this podcast and everywhere that our our own our own way of the cross is unique to us, and yet it's all unifying because we all we all suffer, and so they all you know him having a safe place because I was not in any position to be able to support him. And so he was not getting it from me. And so he had to find it in other faithful men. And when you think of the story of the cross, when you go from the agony to Golgotha, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, every single one of those stations, every single one of those steps, you see that that God has gone through that before we have. 
And in through each of those, there are moments where we see that he has comfort. You know, when Jesus dies, there are, you know, there's his apostle, there's his blessed mother. Um, there is, uh, you know, people there that were his witness. And just like your story, your husband's, your father's, you know, we're never alone. And God, God set that tone before we could even go through that. So thank you so much, Maria, for sharing your beautiful story, um, a little bit of your husband's and your children. Um, what, what is next in your, in your next walk? What's your next step? Well, I don't know wherever God leaves me. So the, the deeper I grow in faith, the more I recognize that I don't know what's best for me. God knows so much better than I do. And so I have really tried to stop making plans and and really turn it over and surrender to God. So he has um, called me. So when my youngest um, started kindergarten, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life and um, hit me like a lead of bricks while I was listening to the Bible in a Year podcast to write this magic treehouse type story for children, because I love the magic treehouse books and I read them with my kids and it's fiction. It's fun, but it's like a little bit of education. And so I wanted to do the same thing with a Catholic spin. Um, and the first story, it's a very, very special series because um, the story is about a foster child who is going to be adopted by a Catholic family. And so the first one is St. Joseph, um, who was, of course, the foster father of Jesus. And he was the saint who walked along with us, me and my husband, during that entire time. So my my first book is dedicated to him. But um, anyway, it's it's really wonderful. And so I want to I want to keep writing that series because I think it's awesome. My kids are starting to outgrow them already, which is so sad. Um, but they they still they still really love it. And and so I'm just going to keep saying yes. So things like you know doing this podcast, like I'm I finally feel um, confident and comfortable sharing this sort of story. And so. Um, if any of your listeners need a speaker, if, if there's any other sort of like grief experience, like this sort of stuff, like I just want to keep giving my fiat to be able to use my life to honor him and and help encourage, uh, especially other women and other mothers um, as they go through the journey of life as we all as we all head to our own resurrection heaven. Right. That's right. Amen. I think that's beautiful. And my. My daughter and I have read your books, by the way. I really, they are so beautiful. And um, the fact that, you know, you can see that Joseph was the first foster father. I mean, how beautiful is that? So we're going to close today with um, offering up some prayers. Um, we'll offer up some loved ones. Do you have anybody that you would like us to offer up some prayers for today? Uh, so my father is Blake Yeager and my grandmother is Carmela Yeager. And then, of course, uh, for all the itty bitty saints and for all the mothers who have lost an itty bitty saint themselves. Okay, let's go ahead and begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today. You know the sadness and the sorrow that each of us carries. You know the crosses that we bear. And for some of us, we are still going through that. And when we think that despair is continuing and that there is no hope. Please be with us and give us those signs as we continue to carry our cross and our journeys. We also offer up the prayers for Blake Yeager and Carmela Yeager, 
Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let the perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. And we also ask for the intercession of our itty-bitty saints in heaven and all the angels and all the saints in heaven. And we also ask for the prayer for suffering mothers and fathers who are going through this journey, that you may comfort them and help them and know that they are not alone in this journey. We offer all of this through your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Maria. So the other thing that we do to close out our show is we like to find out about our guests and if they have a morning glory. So this is where maybe you share a little something that you've come out on the other side of. It can be related to what we've just talked about or not. So what would you say is your morning glory? Um, So the first thing that comes to mind right now is um, my kids are not known for getting along with each other, Um, (laughs) but think that's pretty normal. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> kids are super typical, even though they're right. adopted and we've got all these other things. My kids are really oh my gosh. Um, but just the other day, um, I came downstairs and found um, one helping another do her homework. And they were sitting on the same seat at the kitchen table together, working together and just supporting each other in this like beautiful display of love. And every once in a while, I get these glimpses that maybe I'm doing an okay job as a mom. It's like that picture perfect Kodak moment, huh? It was was very, very rare. And I am going to cherish that in my heart and ponder it in my heart like the Blessed Mother does. It was beautiful. Absolutely. I like to think that when those, when I catch my kids in those moments, I need to write it down so Mm -hmm. that I don't forget like yes they really do love each other because we know they love each other but you know they're kids (laughs) and I have a feeling you're a pretty awesome mom Maria oh thank you well thank you so much for being here um if our guests want to reach out to you what are some ways that they can connect to you can you share maybe your website or social media yeah, absolutely. So my website is mariarileyauthor.com and I am on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And all of those are at Maria Riley Author. I'd love to connect. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for, for sharing your story with us. And um, as we've said before, we know that your, your topic is definitely going to help so many people. And, um, you know, as God says, if we delight in him, he will seek the desires of our heart. So well, we'll go ahead and close on this note. Um, thank you everyone for joining us today on the Morning Glory podcast. We hope you'll find comfort and support in the shows we bring you as we continue on our journey to one day be reunited with God. I'm Andrea Bear, And I'm Jennifer Thomas. And Until I'm we meet again. <laughs> Until we meet again. God bless. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Morning Glory podcast. If you'd like to hear more episodes, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other podcast platforms. You can also check out our Facebook and Instagram pages at Morning Glory Podcast or send us an email at morningglorypodcast at gmail.com. That's M O U R N I N G. G-L-O-R-Y podcast at gmail.com. Until we meet again, God bless.